This morning we continue to move along in our study of the book of Ezra by entering into the second of the two sections of the book. With section 1 comprising chapters 1 through 6, this morning we turn to chapter 7. Last week, as we looked at chapters 5 and 6, I began by making the point that there was a 15-year interval of time between the final verse of chapter 4 and the first verse of chapter 5. We have an additional interval of time between chapter 6 and 7, but one that is four times longer. That is, between the final verse of chapter 6 and the first verse of chapter 7, we have a period not of 15 years, but actually of 60 years. And it's actually between chapters 6 and 7 that the events of the book of Esther chronologically take place. Chapter 7 and following will record for us the second wave of the return of the Jewish people back to Jerusalem following that period of captivity in Babylon. Now, by way of reminder, uh, we began chapter 1, look at the verse there, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. We began that, as it says, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now, recorded history reveals for us that the first year of Cyrus was 538 B.C. And so, 70 years after the first deportation of the Jews from Jerusalem to Babylon. And as we saw at that time, 538 B.C., that there were some 50,000 Jews that were stirred by the Lord to return to the land, to restore and to rebuild the temple, and then eventually the city of Jerusalem. Well, here we are now in chapter 7, and we have moved on to a new king in Persia, a fellow by the name of Artaxerxes. You can see that there in chapter 7, verse 1. And as we'll see in verse 7, it's during his seventh year that the second wave of return takes place. So once again, historically, we know what year that was, and it'll put us right around the year 458 B.C. Zerubbabel, the governor of the Jews that we read so much about in the first six chapters, he's dead and off the scene. We have no additional mention being made of Joshua the high priest. He, too, is likely dead. And beginning now in chapter 7, we begin to follow the ministry of one of the Bible's least known heroes, the scribe Ezra, for whom the book is named. Notice again verse 1, where it says, Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, and so on. And then look down at verse 6, it says, This Ezra, he went up from Babylonia. We learn later, uh, we learn in the later portion of verse 6, that Ezra was a scribe. So look at the second half of verse 6. It says that he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Now we read that, and we think that he was a secretary of sorts, or perhaps a better analogy is that he was some sort of stenographer whose job it was to simply record all the events taking place and words being spoken. Actually, a scribe in this day is much, much more than this. For the Jewish culture in that day, a skilled scribe was an expert in the law of Moses. Scribes, they were highly trained in the word of God and in handling the word of God. Scribes were highly respected for their knowledge and their wisdom and their ability to handle the word of God and to teach others. The scribes at this time, they had three main responsibilities. They were to preserve the word of God. They were to teach the Word of God, and then they were to interpret and apply the Word of God. You know, it's really interesting that the word skilled that is used here 
It's a Hebrew word, which is also oftentimes translated rapid, the idea being swift moves, moving. You know, so someone would come and say, hey, can you give me a Bible verse on worry? Blam! There's a Bible verse on worry. How about finances? Blam, blam! There's one on finances. Well, how about marriage? Blam, 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 blam! There you go. Well, unfortunately, by the time the New Testament and the period of history that's recorded for us in the Gospels, the scribes no longer maintained such a great reputation. Scribes in the New Testament era, they're almost always linked with the Pharisees. And they were really nothing more than legalistic know-it-alls, who in their legalism were actually hindering the work of God on the earth. Consider for a minute, consider these harsh words from Jesus, addressed to both the scribes and the Pharisees. This is found in Matthew 23. There we read, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Now, these scribes knew every verse of their Bible, but they failed to let the word of God impact them in any way. So much so, that when the word of God showed up and stood in front of them, they missed them altogether. There's a lesson and a warning there for us to never allow ourselves to get to the point where we fail to let the word of God impact us. We can read the Word of God over and over and over again, but unless the Word of God reads us, then it hasn't really impacted us as it's supposed to do. We'll talk about this idea a little further as we progress in our study. Now, among the scribes of 440 BC, Ezra in particular was very highly regarded by the Jewish people. In fact, in Jewish tradition, his name is so highly regarded that he has come to be regarded as, quote, second only to Moses. That's pretty high praise. We take notice in the opening verses that Ezra is a descendant of the priestly line, with the ability to trace his lineage all the way back to Aaron, the brother of Moses, the chief priest or the high priest of Israel. Now Ezra here is returning as the high priest of the people. And as we will see, though, he serves a different role than a typical high priest. He's more akin to the prophet Samuel, where he's leading, guiding, directing, teaching the people. Ezra, we know, was an historian. It's believed that Ezra is the author of First and Second Chronicles, the book of Ezra that we're reading now, as well as a number of the Psalms, including Psalm 119. Tradition tells us that Ezra gathered together and led the group of 120 religious leaders that put together what I guess you might call the Old Testament canon of Scripture. Tradition tells us he led that group. It also tells us that it was Ezra that introduced the idea to the Jewish people of the synagogue system, places where the Jewish people, no matter where they lived, they could come to study the Word of God and to apply it. G. Campbell Morgan, he said this of Ezra. He said, as messengers of the will of God, the scribes took the place of the prophets with this difference. Instead of re receiving new revelations, they explained and applied the old. Of this new order, Ezra was at once the founder and the type. He was an expert in exposition and in application of the law. So let's start digging into the text. Look at verse 6b. It says, He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. 
Now, once again, we see another king, a non-Jewish king, being moved by God to accomplish the purposes of God. Last week, we considered the proverb, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God moved Nebuchadnezzar. He moved Cyrus. He moved Darius. And now he moves the heart of Artaxerxes so that he, as it says, grants Ezra all that he asked. Again, just as we saw in our previous study, because the hand of God, as it says in verse 6, the hand of God was on him. God had found a person, and and honestly, a people, as we're going to see, there's 1,500 people that are going to go forth with Ezra in faith, but God had found a person on whom he could show himself strong on behalf of. Men and women, young people, that had discerned the call of God, that is, he was stirring, and then stepped out in faith, not knowing exactly where he was leading or how he would accomplish even what he was leading. In the words of the awesome Stephen Curtis Chapman song, all they really knew for sure was that Jesus had called to them. He said, come follow me, and they came. That's the life of faith. And brother, sister, if you want to be used by God and see God accomplish great things through your life, then you need to obey him when he calls. And you're going to have to step out in faith. That's what Ezra and the others are doing here in chapter 7. Now we continue in verse 8, it says, And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, because the good hand of his God was on him. Now, you're talking about a journey of nearly 900 miles by foot, leading a group of men, women, and children. It's God's favor that he gets them there in a matter of only four months. Again, take notice of the words, for the good hand of God was on him. I pointed out earlier that the scribes of Jesus' day developed into a people that knew the word of God, but didn't allow it to impact them in any way, at least not anymore. Perhaps they started off well, but as time went on, they drifted in their relationship with God. The Bible just became a history book to them. Or as we see again and again in the New Testament, it became a rule book with a list of do's and don'ts that they could memorize and demand of others. That's the reason they lost their effectiveness as servants of the Lord. There's an expression, you can't give what you don't have, that is like the measles or the mumps. And it's a sober warning to any of us in ministry, whether that be as pastors or ministry leaders, or Sunday school teachers, or even parents and guardians. Have you lost your effectiveness in ministry? It could very well be because you've drifted in your own walk with the Lord. That you're ministering, not the fresh things God is teaching you and working in you, but rather from the leftovers of bygone days. Not so with Ezra. Look at verse 10. It said, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord. But not only that, notice it says, and to do it. Ezra was a teacher, but before any of that, he was a student. He was a disciple, a follower. He sets out to know the word of God, but not so that he could teach others, not so that he can keep his position as the high priest, but so that he can know the word to keep the word. He does this so that he can be in a right relationship with God. Anyone that desires to make an impact 
for the kingdom of God must purpose his or herself to diligently seek the Lord in the word of God and then commit to doing that which he shows you to do. Lots of people desire to teach or to lead, but if you're not willing to first follow, your ministry efforts will have no effectiveness, no great anointing. We read in the book of James, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and then he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And then finally, anyone that desires to make an impact for the kingdom of, he- of God then must teach those things they've learned and done to others so that they may learn and do it too. Those are the things that are required of the servant of the Lord. I love this description that Henry Ironside provides of the man Ezra. Ironside says this, he says, Not a mere intellectual student of the word of God, nor one teaching others what had not gripped his own heart and controlled his own ways was Ezra. He had begun by earnestly preparing his own heart to seek the law of the Lord, It's not said that he prepared his head, but his heart. His inmost being was brought under the sway of the truth of God. He was personally right with God, and so was prepared to help set others right with him as well. So, with God's hand of blessing on Ezra, this new king issues a decree granting Ezra and others permission and the resources to return to the land. Again, as we said in the past, the king grants permission. Nobody's forced to go. Only those that choose to follow the Lord's leading and participate in his work are the ones that are going to go. Now we continue in verse 11. It says, This is the copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. And he begins, verse 12, with an intro. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe, the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now, down to business. Verse 13, And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel, or their priest or Levites in my kingdom, who freely offers to go to Jerusalem, may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and the gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the free will offerings of the people and the priest, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls and rams and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do, with the rest of the silver and gold you may do, according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given for the service of the house of your God you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. Fantastic. It's another blank check. Just as we saw last week under King Darius, the Jewish leader is given carte blanche to whatever he needs. Clearly, God's hand of favor is with his people in this book. Artaxerxes' decree, it reveals a great deal of respect for Ezra. Notice what it says there in the middle of the verse, that the, the, the verses I read, the king entrusts him with great wealth, 
right in the middle there, it says, to carry the silver and the gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel. And also, he's given not just, he's not just entrusted with great wealth, but he's entrusted with great responsibility as well. Notice the verses, with this money then you shall, with all diligence, buy bulls, and whatever seems good for you to do, and so on. Ezra is entrusted with a great deal of money, but he's also given some freedom and latitude to make decisions for himself that he would deem appropriate based on the circumstances that he would encounter. The king gives this to Ezra because Ezra had previously established himself as a person that could be trusted. And now that opportunity has come, and so he is thrust into position. Artaxerxes' letter continues in verse 21. It says, And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river, whatever whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or the other servants of the house of God. Not only does Artaxerxes have a good deal of respect for Ezra, as we saw, but he has a great deal of reverence for the God of Israel as well. Look at verse 23 again. It says, Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. The actions of Artaxerxes, they're pretty typical of the kings of Persia, who ever sought really to placate the gods of the people in the territories they conquered. And for Artaxerxes, really, this is just good policy. It's sort of a, an investment uh, in of his nation's resources for their own benefit. You know, why make the god of that land angry? And so here's some money that to kind of buy him off. Now the letter continues even further granting Ezra the authority to govern the land. Look at verse 25. It says, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your god that's in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your god. And those who do not know them, you shall teach them. Whoever will not obey the law of your god and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Wow. Talk about God's favor and God directing the heart of a king like the stream of water, however he wishes. Now look at verse 27. Notice Ezra's response. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. Ezra knows that such favor and generous broad support could only be granted because God was putting such things into the heart of the king. And so he gives thanks and he blesses the Lord. Don't ever forget to say thanks. And notice also, as he discerns the working of the Lord in his circumstance, the effect it has on him. Verse 28, And I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go with me. The effect is that it encourages him. 
We can do this. God is with us. And that, in turn, leads him to become the lead recruiter. Again, verse 28, and I gathered leading men uh, from Israel to go with me. It's so important to receive encouragement from the Lord, to look at what God is doing, to see his hand, to give him thanks, and then to take that information, those clear examples of God at work, and use that as fuel for, so to speak, the faith fire. You know, it's like saying, if God did that, what else might he want to do? Chapter 8. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Parash, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men, and of the sons of Pahath Moab, Elihonai, the son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men, of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men, of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him fifty men, of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him seventy men, of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him eighty men, of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him two hundred and eighteen men, of the sons of Josephia, and with him a hundred and sixty men, of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him twenty-eight men, and of the sons of Azgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him one hundred and ten men. Of the sons of Adonikam, those who came later, their names being Elephalet, Jeuel, and Shemaiah, and with them sixty men. And of the sons of Bigvei, Utei, and Zachar, and with them seventy men. Now, there's about fifteen hundred men that journey with Ezra which are listed here, as it said, according to the heads of their father's houses. And in addition to that, you'd have women and children, which would probably bring the number closer to something like five or 6,000 people that are setting off, following God's leading, and returning to the land of their fathers. Look at verse 15. Ezra says, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi, then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joreb and Elnathan, who were men of insight. And I sent them to Edo, the leading man of Casaphia, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casaphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. Now, we, we do not know exactly where the river that runs to Ahava is located, but it's at this river, somewhere between modern-day Iraq and present-day Israel, that Ezra and these people stop in camp and they begin to take inventory. And it's while there that Ezra realizes that they're woefully short of temple servants, the, the sons of Levi. In fact, he, he even says that they found none. Remember, all priests had to be Levites, but not all Levites were priests. It was only the sons of Aaron, of which Ezra is one, that could serve as temple priest. The rest of the sons of Evi, Levi, I should say, those not of Aaron's line, they would serve the priest, and they would perform the duties of the temple. Maybe you recall back from our study of First Chronicles, these would be the Gershomites, the Kohathites, and the Merorites. So here's Ezra now realizing that they don't have enough of these priestly servants, and so he reaches out to 11 of the men 
that are currently in his entourage. It's right there in the middle of the passage. Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, uh, and so on. And he gives them instructions that they are to go to this place that's called Kasaphia and there recruit ministers for the house of God. Verse 17. Somehow word had filtered to Ezra that a portion of the tribe of Levi had settled in this Kasaphia, and knowing his need for temple servants to assist the priest in the ministry they will, they will do when they safely arrive in Jerusalem, Ezra sends representatives to invite these sons of Levi to participate in the work of the Lord. And again, notice, he invites them. There's no compulsion in the service. Just as Cyrus and Artaxerxes granted permission to whoever would want to go and follow the Lord's leading, so too do we see Ezra extending an invite. And the Holy Spirit works no differently in our day as well. He's ever inviting, but never compelling. Let me say this. You will go as far with God as you want to go. He'll keep inviting, but he'll never compel you. The Holy Spirit will invite, and he will encourage, and he will enlighten, but he will never force. There's an interesting account that we read of the prophet Ezekiel in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47, where the Lord directs Ezekiel to step into this river of water. Now, a river of water in the scripture is oftentimes symbolic of the person and work of the Holy Spirit much the same way we see in the New Testament that he is compared to the wind uh, or something like that. There in Ezekiel 47, the prophet is led to step into the ankle-deep water. And then he's led a little bit further down the river to where the water is knee-deep and then waist-deep. Each time a little further, each time a little deeper. And finally we read that the water had risen to the point, it says, deep enough to swim. That's the place of total immersion. That's the place where Ezekiel would have to just sort of let go and let the current take him where it will. Let me show you one last thing with this picture from the book of Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel 47 verse 9, and it says this, Wherever the river goes, every living creature will live. Everything will live where the river goes. Now what a picture of the life-giving work that God does when we surrender to him. Our final word on this, it's from the book of Revelation. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Does that describe you? Well, if it does, praise the Lord. Set your heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. And the promise of God is to bless you with life. And now our closing verse. It says, And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen. 18. Also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons. 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials set apart to attend the Levites, Levites, These were all mentioned by name. The net was cast, and the people responded. And once again, notice Ezra makes mention of God's hand of blessing upon their endeavors. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for men like Ezra, Lord, that were just so committed to the word, committed to knowing it, applying it to their own lives, 
Lord, letting it read them and interpret who they are as a person, Lord, and uh, submitting their will to it. Lord, we thank you also for their commitment to making it known to others and applying it to the lives of others. And uh, Lord, in so many ways, we are blessed today because of the faithfulness of a guy like Ezra. And so we thank you for his uh, ministry recorded for us in the scripture. And Lord, we thank you for the challenge of your word today. Lord, the example of these five or 6,000 people, Lord, that step out in faith because you're leading and guiding. Not really knowing for sure, but all they really do know for sure is that you've called to them. And Lord, you do the same thing today, and you're doing the same thing daily in our lives. You're calling to us. You're leading us to step out and to walk in faith. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, do a work within our hearts that we might take courage. We'd step out in faith. Lord, we'd go as far with you as you would have us to go. Lord, that we'd uh, sort of step into that water and and let it uh, sort of overwhelm us and uh, let the current take us to the place of life. Lord, truly we agree with your word that uh, as we surrender our lives, then we'll truly find life. And so, Father, keep guiding, keep directing, and bless us as a body of believers, we pray in your name. Amen.